Welcome to the Common Justice Podcast. My name is Donnell Penny and I am the host for today's episode. I am super excited to dive into this discussion with activists and authors, Donna Hilton, an assistant director and director of wellness and therapeutic services for Life Camp, Kepra Kears. I want to start this off by uh, just asking you, Donna, uh, do you mind telling us uh, a little about yourself? Tell the listeners a little about yourself. Hi, everybody. Thanks for having me on your podcast. So I'm Donna Hilton. I am the founder and president of A Little Piece of Light. We're a women-led organization that focuses on women, trans women, young women, LGBTQ individuals who've been impacted by trauma, abuse, uh, incarceration, um, you know, marginalization, all of that. And, you know, I do this work based on my own journey. I served 27 years in New York State's maximum security prison for women. I have, um, you know, have a lot of trauma in my background. And so, you know, I understand the, the, the pipelines that send us to prison, right? Instead of mm-hmm. getting us help, they send us to prison as opposed to getting the support we need. So that's what drives my work. Okay. Okay. I understand. And uh, uh, Kepra, can you tell us a little about yourself and, and the work that you do? Yes. Uh, give thanks. Thanks for having me. My name is Kepra Kears, and I am now the chief wellness officer at Life Camp. I oversee all therapeutic wellness services for staff and our community members impacted by the trauma of gun violence. And we treat violence as a public health crisis because we look at the condition that causes someone to act out their trauma because we know that trauma is often the reason and then the result of gun violence. It takes a traumatized person to pick up a gun doesn't mean it's right. It means there's a deeper layer of healing going on. So we approach violence as a disease so that we can help deal with the root cause of what is going on within the individual. And then we provide wraparound services to restore the wholeness of that individual and their families, because our goal ultimately is to keep young people out of the prison system, you know, and and ultimately um, alive and thriving in their purpose. Thank you for that. And I'm very excited that you both agreed to be here and that we're able to dive into these discussions about healing trauma and gun violence. Of course, you know, I'm a part of Common Justice, where we provide the alternative to incarceration for violent crimes, as well as victim services programs. The reason why we started doing this podcast was to bring together activists, healers and artists to discuss what you know we need to do as far as our own power to build and to heal each other in our communities. Um, and I feel like you are both great candidates for that piece. Donna, I see that you do a lot of work advocating for the rights of women and girls who have been impacted by intersexual trauma and violence. And I wanted to know what helped you to sort of get through that yourself. And um, why do you do this work? Why does why is it important to do this work? So um, as I was saying earlier, you know, the focus of my organization um, is to focus on those who have been impacted by abuse, trauma, violence, and incarceration. And that is because of the journey that I had and the journey of so many other women, you know, like myself. When I went into prison as an adolescent, it was trauma, it was the abuse and the violence that surrounded my life that led me there, right? And because there were no interventions, there was no adult figures in my life or within the community that helped me, that reached out and, you know, wanted to um, really be honest and say that they knew that I was being abused. They knew um, stuff was going on in my my home. You know, um, I was trafficked when I was a little girl. I was seven and a half when I was brought to this country. By the time I was nine and a half, my now father figure uh, started raping me and molesting me in a closet. And so that shaped and formed my life mostly. And, you know, I ran away at 14 with an older man trying to get away because it was the first time an adult said they believed me and was going to help me. And so I ran away with him and he became my worst nightmare. And it was, you know, all of these, um, and I won't say bad choices, but they were the only choices that I had trying to find help as a child. Um, These adults that, you know, just perpetrated perpetuated the harm and the trauma, some worse than others. And, you know, I thought I was alone in that pain. I thought I was alone in that, in, 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 in everything that was going on. It was all my fault. And then I went into prison, got caught up into something way over my head, uh, you know, a crime that, you know, took the life of a human being. And I couldn't grapple with that. I couldn't understand that because that's not who I am. Mm -hmm. 
I never was that person. And so when I went into prison, I found hundreds of other women, young women, just like myself, who had been traumatized. I mean, severely abused. You talk about rape and, oh my gosh, it, it, it was just so much. And then one day I just started questioning why. Why were there so many like me? You know, I thought I was alone and, you know, it was isolating. But then when I found out, I was like, oh, wow, I'm not alone. It kind of like, oh, okay. Mm. So I'm not, I'm not like an anomaly. I'm not a monster. I'm not, you know, a bad person. Like this happens. And then I started questioning, but wait, why? And so, you know, it was me starting to do my own healing, you know, work on the trauma that surrounded my life. Um, understanding why people don't help children when they tell you they're being hurt. Cause it's not like I didn't say when I was a child that I was being hurt, but I wasn't listened to. Right. Mm. Um, and so it just, yeah, it just shaped me and it shaped the work that now what I do, because we don't really understand who we lock up, who we lock up and why. And it's, you know, what it is, instead of dealing with the trauma, instead of trying to heal people, we just like to throw it away. we like to lock it up and act like it doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. We lock up people for having substance abuse, right? Issues. We lock up people for mental health issues. We lock up people for being poor. We lock up people for so many reasons instead of dealing with the root causes. And that's what I like to shed light on. I like to like make people uncomfortable because people are so comfortable in in like like trying to like negate or or like not believe that this stuff exists and like they have nothing to do with it. We're all, we're all in this together. And if you don't say, say something, you speak up and try to help a child or whoever the person may be, then you're just as guilty, right? It's just as your fault as anybody else's. And so we're talking about collective trauma here. And that's, those are the things that, you know, we focus on and we try to help, you know, we try to bring healing. But first, before we even get to healing, we have to identify it. We have to acknowledge it. We have to say, yes, it does exist. And then look at ourselves in it, the roles that we play. And so that's what we do at A Little Piece of Light. Okay, okay. Capra, I don't know if you wanted to add to that or say anything towards that. I mean, when you're on a panel with Donna Hilton and she speaks about her story of trauma, you know, um, it stands alone. And there are so many of our young women and men who have been sexually abused. And that level of trauma, when you talk about treating violence like a disease, Many black and brown people are living with trauma that is unspoken. And like I said earlier, trauma is often the reason and then the result of violence because it takes a level of deep pain to decide that I'm going to take somebody else's life in order to resolve my conflict. Mm. And so there's so many different types of trauma. You know, there's that individual trauma that a person deals with that can come from an an immediate situation Or sometimes it's the cumulative stress of just surviving that a lot of our parents deal with or the fear every day that their children are going to go outside and they may not return. And that creates PTSD, which is a form of trauma. Mm -hmm. And then there's the vicarious trauma for people who are constantly seeing and hearing gunshots and hearing the police sirens day and night and then turning on the tell lies to the vision and listening Mm -hmm. to the bad news. And it's all based on the marketing of fear. And so collective trauma is when a large group of people are individually traumatized and they live in close proximity and then they keep re-traumatizing each other because they're in a state of fight or flight mode. So when you look at urban environments where people are living sometimes on top of one another, I step outside and I might be dealing with abuse in my home. I might be dealing with an economic issue. I might be dealing with being bullied and you look at me the wrong way or you take my parking spot or something else happens. You step on my foot and perhaps because I'm overpowered in my home, I need to now release all of this aggression and I'm taking it out on you. And so healing is important because healing is physical, mental and spiritual, emotional. Some of the things that we do in our organization When it comes first to the physical healing, like Donna was mentioning, we have to remove people from the environment. 
you know, and sometimes that looks like emergency safety. Sometimes that looks like support for housing relocation, you know, because it's real. This, this is, these are real situations. But then it's also going to the hospital and dealing with the insensitivity often of the medical institution and the doctors who are constantly seeing black and brown people come in with gunshot wounds and the doctors don't look like us. So there becomes this stigma of our people. And so we've dealt with the situation. I'll give you one situation briefly. There was one of our young men who was shot on, you know, standing in front of a bodega and it was caught on the cameras. And so he was rushed to the hospital. Before his mother got to the hospital, the news cycle was playing the footage of him being dropped in the lobby of the hospital. So when she comes in, she's automatically treated differently because, you know, he had to do something for that to happen, right? And so she had been there all night. The doctors were very insensitive. They even said, well, you know, he's probably not going to make it. You know, like just so casually, like, do you want coffee or do you want tea for breakfast? And so she called us because she needed emotional support. And so when we went to to greet her, you know, when you're dealing with our people, you know, our trauma is unconventional because it's vibrational. You have to be able to be fluid in the moment and, and, and deal with what's happening and connect with the energy of our people. And so I was holding her. We prayed together. You know, I talked her through getting the courage to go back upstairs and be with her son. And when we went to go back upstairs, because she forgot her pass, now everybody in the hospital knew who she was and she had been there all night, but he said, you don't have your pass, you can't come upstairs. Like literally he's doing his job, like spiritually disconnected to a mother who was told her son is probably not going to live and you are actually giving her grief about a pass when you've seen her all night. And so these are the types of insensitivities that trigger deeper emotional trauma from the insensitivity to, sensitivity to the, of the doctor to the security guard, and then to get upstairs. And the young man is paralyzed, laying in the bed, but the police are standing right outside the door. Like he, there's nowhere he can go. And the presence is also triggering. So there's so many layers that are constantly reignited in that moment. And us being there was about negotiating with the police. Like, could you just step back. Like you can still see if somebody's coming on the floor, but you don't have to be right on this young man and his mother. And she doesn't want to talk because she's emotional. And when you're emotional, you don't have the cognitive ability to give information, nor do you want to. And so I say that because the importance of healing for our community is in layers. It's not about one program. It's not about one one motive. It's recognizing that there are layers. And so it is collective. And we have to bring all the resources, mental, physical, and emotional, to have compassion for our people to heal. Because when they're healed, and we remove those blockages of fight or flight, then they can begin to live. Then they be can begin to resolve their issues and live together in community. Thank you. Thank you for that. No, I just wanted to um, say that, you know, to Kepra's point, you know, our children or we are not looked at as human beings, right? Our children are not looked at as children. And so when you hear about our children being harmed, automatically it's, it's that child's fault, right? And, you know, not even waiting to find out the whole story, like really what happened or what's going on, like automatically we're prejudged based on the color of our skin. Right, mm-hmm. maybe a name, <laughs> you know, this, the the way a, a, a person's name is spelled or pronounced or whatever. I mean, there's so many factors, but these are all the pipelines, right? Uh, but we have to first really understand and recognize. When you ask me my question, that question about like my, you know, my journey, what happened to me, why I do this work, and it's that we we our children are criminalized, right? And it's the criminalization of black girls and black boys, mm-hmm. period. That's what it is. No matter what our child, you know, that's not acting out in school, whatever the case may be, automatically they're a problem as opposed to seeing, checking them to see what's going on with them. The child might be harmed going through something, right? And acting out, or the child might have cognitive, you know, (laughs) some cognitive issues going on. And so, but we don't, they don't take their time to find that out automatically. We're monsters. We're, we're, we're criminals. We're all kinds of things as opposed to being just children or just human beings. And so that's why you see stuff like that would happen to, to that young man, you know, automatically he was a monster. Mm-hmm. He didn't deserve any type of, 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 of compassion or understanding. He, he didn't deserve empathy because none of us, right. The way we're treated, none of us deserve empathy. 
And that's our fight. Agree. I definitely agree with that. Um, of course, a man of color with a son who's 17 now, but even uh, watching him do normal things as far as run down the street past cops and having to tell him that that's not something you can do. You can't just run because they, they would think it's something else or they don't see you as the little kid I see you as. You're automatically uh, transformed into this adult that you're not even capable of handling the responsibilities of yet. So I totally understand that piece. The next question is, Basically, y'all, y'all hear a lot right now about what's going on in the news about the shootings uh, across the country. And a lot of the answers to this sometimes from, you know, people who are higher up uh, are to do things like more prison, uh, harsher policies. Right. These uh, invading things to 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 a person of color's lifestyle rather than actually uh, trying to see what we can do in our community to fix it. So my question to you is, what what do you wish that you would hear more addressed when you hear about gun violence in our community? What are some of the things that stick out for you? Well, one of the things that we want people to always remember is that violence is a disease. And when you treat violence like a public health issue, like a disease, you look at it differently. Recognize that violence begets violence. If I'm a young person and I grow up in a community where there's domestic violence, interpersonal violence, police violence, then that is what I'm learning is the way to live. And so violence becomes contagious in that way. In addition, you know, we talk about always dealing with the reaction to someone being violent. So that means, you know, more police and harsher laws, but we don't deal with the healing of it. Are we really about restoring the community? Because if we are, then it's about how do you restore the life in that community? How do you heal what's going on in that family? How do you address the issues that cause violence, like poverty, like lack of education, like lack of resources, even nutrition? We live in food insecure environments. And we know for a fact that when you eat a lot of starch and processed food, that also has an impact on your ability to be calm, to be able to rationalize. So our kids are wired when they go to school because they go to the corner store, they're getting all kinds of candy, processed food, they get to the class and maybe prior to that, they played some video games or they're, you know, we have all of this technology in the ears, which is releasing dopamine, which is a hormone. And so they're amped and then they get to school and it slows down and the teachers aren't always in tune with the learning abilities of our children and the dynamics. So then they're misdiagnosed with ADHD and they're given medication. So the same way we want to stop the school to prison pipeline, we want to stop the school to psychiatric institution and pill prescription pipeline because a lot of our young people are misdiagnosed and being given medication at a younger age when we can just remove some of the sugar and teach parents how to create healthy meals even in a food insecure environment which is something we do a lot. And the last thing I'll say, um, sisters like Erica Ford and Orisa Knapper and Chico Tillman, um, brothers and sisters around the country, have been fighting to get more funding for community-based violence intervention programs. And just recently, they were the ones who were actually behind proposing that the president put $5 billion in the infrastructure bill to really um, address community violence. And it was recently included in the House budget So I just want to acknowledge them because, again, this is a layered approach. We need people in politics. We need people in the street. We need people at the hospital level. We need people in the home. And so it's so important to look at it holistically. And remember, like Sister Donna said, we are all human beings. And so the moment that someone is impacted by gun violence, you have to remove all of the what do you think happened? Because alcoholism, I you know, Britney Spears was an alcoholic, had a train wreck. Charlie Sheen traveled all around the country touting his coke addictions. And we still gave them the opportunity to recover and be celebrities and have opportunity. They are no different, you know, and they actually had privilege. Right. And they had access. So we have to treat people like human beings and recognize that it is a disease. Mm. No one wants to be violent. And it takes a lot for me to bring up all of my energy to throw it at you. So I'm actually hurting myself before I hurt you. So there's got to be going something going on inside of me. That's a deep level of pain that's causing me to act out my trauma. Strong words. And uh, Donna, do you have anything else on that? Well, I just want to like really highlight that, you know, it's so true. I was thinking when you, when you said Capra about, you know, when our children act out, you know, 
and the first thing they want to do is 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 diagnose them with some kind of disorder or whatever um and give them medication i mean it happened to my daughter you know when i was in prison but no one ever bothered to try to find out what was the root cause what was going on my daughter had been severely molested by a family member and was being abused at home right by her father and his wife you know no one bothered to talk to the to the chat um, automatically she was a problem and we see this happening over and over again and so you know there's that criminalization again right we're talking about not seeing our children as children not seeing them as human beings you know and having some empathy or some compassion for them and so when that la- you know we we walk through life that way in this country and so we don't get the benefit of the doubt like anyone else and then we see you know after my 27 years and coming out and I went into certain neighborhoods First of all, like I'll call it. I went into Chelsea. Chelsea, when I left, mm. you would not be over there by the water or anything by after five. I'm just saying, <laughs> right? You would not be over there. This was in the 80s. Yeah. I come out in 20, what, 2012? And I go and I'm like all these um art uh galleries and all this stuff. You got a prison right there though, but it's like, yes. wow. You know, you have all these, I mean, the pier. It was, I was like, who went on the pier? <laughs> so <laughs> You know, and then I go into other neighborhoods that are primarily there, like 100% almost black, right? Black and brown. And where are the lights? The playgrounds look like battlegrounds, like it, it just like war torn um, countries, right? Mm-hmm. And just you can see the lack and you have to question why. So then you make sure certain communities don't have the resources, make sure they don't, you, they look a certain way. <clears throat> right? To keep the mindset. You have to see what you do people psychologically, you keep people in a mindset, like they're in a war, they're in a war zone. Mm-hmm. And then you expect them to be and do what? Then behave in what way? And then you want to blame them. Like the war on drugs. Who was it really the war on? Black communities. Agreed. Because black communities couldn't get that much drugs into the community. Ever. I mean, come on. There were the yachts and all the hel- mm. planes and helicopters and and I mean we already know right pro and tell pro we we are pro and tell pro we already know so we have to look and again take accountability and responsibility for our role in our roles in things right and so we know the by design like the um, NYCHA, right we used to call them projects right we shouldn't be calling that that design but let's say projects right the ghetto. It comes from the word grotto, how they treated the Jews, right, in concentration camps. It's exactly how they look. So they have you concentrated in a certain area and treat that certain. They make sure they have control of the water. They make sure they have control of the grids. They make sure they have control of so much. And they keep you isolated. They keep you in this place. And so you feel like you can't come outside of it. The silent boundaries, those invisible boundaries that we have. Mm. And we keep people, we keep people in, you know, in, in a certain, yes. um, or treat them in a certain manner and keep them in a certain place and environment and make them think that's all that you can do. That's all that you're worthy of. That's all, you know? And so you wonder why we, we harm each other because you're already taught we don't matter. So if I see you aspiring and getting and moving up and, and doing something, um, you know, finding your way outside of those boundaries, me being taught that, well, I'm nothing. I don't, I, I'm not worthy. I'm not anything. So I'm going to look at you and feel you're not worthy. So who are you? Yes. yes. So automatically I'm going to want to cause you harm because that's what I was taught. Let's go to the root cause here. Let's go to the root cause. Our children feel like they can't go outside of their comfort zone, their circumference. Mm-hmm. Now the six block or, or 10 block radius, whatever it is in their neighborhoods, they feel like they can't go outside of it. Why? Because they're told you don't belong over there. And when they try to do that, they get pulled back down. You know what, Donna, that when, when you said that, it just reminded me when I was younger, I thought I was not allowed to go into stores like Saks and Bergdorf Goodman I, I, on everything I love. I'll never forget that I, here I was a working young woman working in the city, making a decent salary, pay, paying my taxes. And I did not go into those stores because I thought I wasn't allowed. I wasn't wealthy enough. I thought you had to be somebody or have a certain level of means. And I'll never forget, someone said to me, oh, they having a sale at Bergdorf. You know, just something she was saying, oh, the shoe that you were looking at. And I was like, well, I can't go in there. And she was like, why not? 
She was like, why, why can't you go in there? I was like, well, don't you have to like be a certain, she was like a certain what girl, come on, let's go into Bergdorf. And I'll never forget that. And I was like, wow, all this time I was programmed to believe that I did not belong there and I needed some invitation or some sort of special credential. So what you're saying is so true and it resonates on so many levels. And it even translates in how our young people, when we're training them for the workforce, they don't feel that they're good enough to work in certain industries. So they stay picking the same industries that they feel comfortable around, not thinking that they could be the next scientists, the next lawyers, doctors, presidents, you know, innovators of technology. So I just I just had to jump in on that because that really resonated with me. Yeah. Um, and definitely what you, what you were just saying, Kepra, about careers, right? And um, people of color being in careers. And I, I forget the word for it. It's pretend syndrome. Y'all help me out here. What is it called again? Um, imposter syndrome. Yeah. Imposter syndrome. Right. Okay. Um, imposter syndrome. There we go. Each one, teach one. Yeah. So. <laughs> yes. So um, just feeling like in that space, like you don't belong. And even some people who are telling their stories, right? Like you, Donna, uh, and you, Capra, being able to be like, I'm not worthy enough to be in that space and the realm with these other people and tell my story. When the truth is, you you live in that is, is power. It's power in that thing to, to come out and, you know, speak your truth. So my next question, um, Kepra, I was I was surprised when, when, when I seen this question. I'm, I'm being transparent. But you had some history inside of the music industry, right? And it means that you're a lover of the arts, Right. You're a love of the arts like me. I love that. Love that. I also know that the arts has helped people a lot through their healing. Right. From their traumas. And I wanted to know, do you believe that to be true? How how, how does that work? Well, it's funny that you asked that. Um, I worked in the music industry for 10 years. I started at Def Jam in the early 90s and I worked my way over 10 years um, to Sony Music, Columbia, Arista Records. So I did everything from working in the A&R division as an assistant when we signed like Method Man and work with Fred Man, like, you know, I'm old school. And, um, and then eventually got into marketing and artist development. The interesting thing about music, um, having grown up in a housing development in Brooklyn in Canarsie called Brookline, because I agree, sister, they're not projects because we're not farm animals or lab rats, right? Mm -hmm. And um, I'll never forget that at, there was a letter that came to our home that said there was an opportunity for us to be bused to an all-white school. It was a better school for education. And so, you know, of course, every family wants their child to have the best opportunity. So we were bused to school. So we get on the bus with all the black kids. We get to the all white school and then they tested us. And I don't really know what they tested for, but I ended up being the only black person in all of my classes from first to sixth grade. Then I had to get back on the bus with my my community and go mm -hmm. back into the um, back into the housing development. And I say that because. In that public school, I learned to play the flute. I learned to play the violin. I learned to read and write sheet music. I was in every play. And all of those things actually helped me because when I came back home, I was surrounded by violence and poverty and pain. And so music was my release and my escape. And if it wasn't for the arts to be able to mm. express, to be able to even cry on stage, even when I was crying about something that was going on in my house, but I was able to just use my character to release. It was very therapeutic. And when I went into the music industry, I noticed how music was used to poison the minds of our young people. And so I watched the culture change before my, I loved hip hop. I used to, you know, everybody who didn't want to be an MC even on the low, right? And I used to get mm -hmm. in ciphers and, you know, I just loved the music and fall asleep with my Sony Walkman on, listening to all the lyrics, you know, shout out to um, <laughs> Ralph McDaniel's video music box, you know? And so- when I got into the music business, I was so excited. I was like, oh, man, this is an opportunity for me behind the scenes to support the industry that I loved. And I watched the culture shift over time. I watched how commercialism came in. And it's like, remember, a culture is a way of life. So just like a body, you can't take a piece of the body and expect for it to still function. If a culture is made up of emceeing and DJing and graffiti and breakdancing, you know, you you can't then go, OK, we're going to separate the MC who used to also be the DJ and just call him a rapper. 
and separate the rap from the heart, which is the music. And so what I found was over time, I've been even in meetings where they would say, oh, we're not going to really do anything for this artist. You know, they sell on their own, like just so many things that were done behind the scenes to compromise the music. And the more that corporations saw that they could make money off of our culture, they began to tear it apart. And then Mm -hmm. you were given more money if you perpetuated a certain lifestyle, hypersexuality, hyperviolence. And for our young people, because hip hop is a hip hop is the only art form where people take it seriously. You can't rap about something unless you're living it. You know, Al Pacino Scarface is probably one of the most popular movies, you know, in hip hop. But Al Pacino gets to go live his life. Nobody's holding him to be in a gangster. Nobody's testing him in the street. But in hip hop, if you rap about it, you have to be about it. And unfortunately, this culture used the corporations to throw a lot of money at kids who really weren't about that life. And they got caught up in a lot of words and a lot of things. And I saw people get hurt. I saw people get shot and stabbed over things that they said. That, that oftentimes weren't real or perpetuated a lifestyle in a music video and all of it was rented. So when I got to the peak of my career, I was making the most money in my life. I had an employment contract. I was a single mom, but my spirit said it's time to go. And it's time to now do something different with your gifts because I felt like I was now a part of the problem. And so I was led to Rikers Island. Mm. Like, (laughs) you can't make this stuff up. I was really in tune and spirit led me to Rikers. And I said, you know, I want to help to shift the minds of our young people because I see them getting caught up in the music and, you know, not on a soapbox. I still love hip hop. I'm not anti music. But when you see that there's poison in the mind, you have to help young people discern between what's real and what's entertainment. And so they let me come in. They let me work in OBC, which is one of the more violent houses, you know, for young people who were convicted or accused of violent crimes. I was able to teach. And what was beautiful was I was able to bring in music and aromatherapy and I snuck in fresh fruit. And so when they walked in, I just played the instrumentals of their favorite songs without the words. And I had aromatherapy. So they walked in like bopping and breathing. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, now we can build. And we were able to connect. And it was so healing and vibrational using music and sound therapy, you know, to just help people to relax. And, you know, instead of saying meditate, I was like, let's go into a zone. And I would put on a beat and we would do breath work. And it was so beautiful and therapeutic. And so in the work that we do today, we give sound baths. We bring healing, we bring sound bowls and other instruments to bring healing, to help people to reduce stress, you know, in order to get to a place where we could even have a conversation. So, and on our Peace Mobile, which is a 35 foot mobile trauma Mm -hmm. unit or um, recreational vehicle, we don't like to call it a mobile trauma unit. And so we pull up, And we let the young people put their pain on beats. We call it the Pain on Beats Recording Studio because we know that hip hop is a universal language. And so we pull up and let young people express their pain and then teach them how to find additional words. You know, there's other ways to say the same thing to help them build on their vocabulary, but it's a great way for healing. So I said all of that to say absolutely yes music and also dance. African dance is great for our girls. It helps to release a lot of sexual energy that oftentimes is unprocessed or they don't know how to deal with what they're feeling, which is very natural and celebrating their bodies and teaching them that who they are is beautiful and what they feel is natural and find healthy ways to express it. Okay. 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 Yeah. um, Even like once again, going back, I don't know, everything revolves around me having children now. Like I definitely, I'm a different type of reflector <laughs> now that I have my kids and watching him get into music the way I got into music and also hearing some of those messages as well and trying to tell him that it's, it's, it's an art form, not something you should follow. A lot of those people who do that music and create that music aren't following that lifestyle or they they wouldn't be here, right? Um, so yeah, I definitely understand that piece. So it's this saying, right, that we always hear and it goes... Hurt people hurt people, right? When was it that you noticed that inside of uh, our community that we had to do that thing of healing each other, that we had to get to that process of doing that? For me, it happened when I got to prison because the prison was filled with hundreds of, I mean, hundreds of women from our communities, right? My community. So why Mm. were so many women in prison from the community who all identify with trauma at some point. 
sexual abuse, you know what I mean? Sexual trauma, emotional, mental, all the, you know what I mean? Physical trauma. Why? And so there, there, there was a common thread there, right? You had a lot of women who were there who uh, were blamed for things that they didn't do because they were with a guy or they had no other choice but to be there because they were with a guy and they got most of the time. Let's, let's be clear. That's what happens, right? Women being used as mules, women defending themselves snapped one day because they've been abused and beaten, battered so long, they snapped. I mean, the, the commonalities, the, the stuff, they just was like, wow. And that, that thread was just like, why is this just such a resounding common thread here, right? And it just, you know, as I, because I, again, I was an adolescent when I first went into the system. As I started to grow and to heal myself, and I started healing in solitary confinement. If you could heal in solitary confinement, you could heal. You could start the process there because that is not a place fit for man nor beast, right? Let's be very clear. Mm-hmm. So when I started, you know, my own process, and it was an, alone, right? I was alone in it when I started. I just realized, I was like, I have to do something. I have to help in some way. Because I started recognizing I had to remove myself from it because I kept, the blame was all on me. I blamed me for every single thing that anybody ever did to me. And I didn't realize I was carrying other people's baggage, other people's stuff. And I owned it. So where was Donna? Where, where's Donna in there? Where is she? And, and I started like figuring that out for myself and then, you know, helping to develop programs while I was there that would help heal, create safe spaces, Right. But I see that out here. I mean, I w- we were out there here first before we even went inside. So it's the same thing. Mm. So how do you how do you help people? First of all, take the power back. Take their power back. Right? And how to stop owning what other people do to have done and stop owning another person. Basically the expectations that we have, you know what I'm saying? Because you get lost in all of that. Like you can get lost and you lose yourself. And so, I mean, there's so many layers to, to, to healing, right? But the first thing you have to do is really face yourself and forgive yourself. And I might've went off course a little bit, but I just wanted to get to that because you gotta like, healing can only happen. And I say, this is like, I'll stand on it. Mm-hmm. Healing can only happen when you start with forgiveness and the first person to forgive is yourself. That's the only way we're going to heal. Because we have owned, like I owned every single thing an, an adult or whoever else did to me. Like it was mine. It was my fault. Like I, was, I, I became that ugly person, right? In my mind, like deserving of anything that was bad. I knew it wasn't good as a child. It was so off, but I didn't know how bad, you know what I mean? but I owned it. So Donna was buried there, right? Buried somewhere. That's why I was like, I kept on holding on to a little piece of light somewhere because I kept thinking somewhere back here, I say, but that's not really, that's not right. You just know, you just know. So I held on to that. And that's what, you know, the work that we do at a little piece of light is so important. And others that do this work, right? Mm -hmm. Violence interrupters, all that is so important because there's that. We've become so angry and so bitter, and so lacking of self-worth and self-value because of all that stuff that society has, you know, thrust upon us, buried us in, that we do to each other, you know, those cycles of trauma, the generational curses, right? That's what they are, generational curses. And so, but the only way to break those things, the only way is to find forgiveness. And the first person you have to forgive is yourself, the first person. And from there, I promise you, whoever's listening to this, I promise you, I promise you, once you do that, the rest becomes easy. We are the hardest person to face. So even for myself, um, I've been a person who has caused a lot of harm myself in my, in my younger years, just feeling ashamed, right? Feeling ashamed and not being able to come to myself in that way, in a whole way. Being able to see why I did that and try to heal from it. I knew that 
there was pieces that were broken in me and until I was until I was able to actually connect with that piece of myself, I wouldn't be able to connect with anybody else, right? I was numb. I wanted some of my stuff to be answered too, right? Sometimes. And that meant that I had to do that self-work because I definitely, one of my values that I was connected to, and I think that's what you were getting to, one of the things we're con I'm connected to is making sure that I am a good person and I do give to my community and I am a certain way. And what I did and my actions were against that thing. Right. So I know I had to fix myself first before I went there. And um, Kepra, do you have any anything on that? Do you, how, how do you feel about that? The whole healing, healing of self peace and, you know. Yeah, I mean, that's that's what I'm all about. And so I love that Donna talked about self-forgiveness because that's one of the things that we also um, encourage people to do. And a lot of people don't take the time to say, I forgive myself, but I forgive myself for judging myself as unworthy, as not enough, as a failure, you know, because it's the judgment against ourselves that actually keeps us bound. And so for me, I buried a lot of my trauma in overachieving. You know, um, I grew up in an environment where there was a lot of domestic violence, like it wasn't uncommon to hear it next door, to have it in your home or, you know, it was just gro growing up in the 70s, you know, the early, late 70s. And just that was a, that was part of the culture. You know, and so for me, I thought overachieving and making it out would help me to overcome the things that I had seen or experienced because I experienced the vicarious trauma of hearing the violence. I experienced the interpersonal trauma. I experienced it in my home. And I love my parents. My parents are still married to this day. Like that, I'm grateful for that. That's so rare. But when you are young parents and you're growing up and you're going through the process and you're, you're you know, raising children, you know, during that time, the stress sometimes, you know, you, you, if my father yelled, that was just like just as bad as getting hit res respectfully. You know what I'm saying? And it could be over the smallest thing. And he'd be like, get in here and, you know, get this off the floor or whatever. And and it would be like, why are you so angry that there's dishes in the sink? Like, why? You know, but I didn't <laughs> yeah. realize the rage that he has had as a young black man trying to make it coming up from the deep south, raising children and having a wife. And so I'm so grateful that I learned that now. Mm -hmm. But at the time. There was so much hurt and anger and I personalized his pain and made it about me. And so I found that my mom, she was more the peacemaker, the peacekeeper, but to some degree she was docile. And so I felt like if I overachieve and I just take it and I can take it, you know what I'm saying? And um, my sisters would tease me because I was in the white classes. So I spoke a certain way and I played the flute, you know, so I'm corny and I'm outside, you know, everybody's outside on the bench, you know, and I'm bringing my backgammon set. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And so I'm bringing a book on the bench. You know, you know what it is, bench culture. You know, you're supposed to sit out and chill. Mm -hmm. So my sister was way cooler than me. But the point was that I thought overachieving would bury all of that. And it was when, you know, as I, you know, became a young mother and I was striving in the corporate world. And it was when I became the only black executive in in the, these organizations and I'm striving and I would receive abuse from the women, emotional abuse, the jealousy from white women. You know, I'm showing up, I'm, you know, I clean up nice and you know, you've got to be how they say Obama, like when you're the only black person, you got to be better, smarter. Da, 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 da. So I was really bringing my A game. And the more I excel, the more it seemed to be a problem to the point where I was breaking down, like, what else do I need to do? And that's when I realized it wasn't about what I was doing. It was about who I was being. It was about really knowing who I am. And so, Donna, when you talked about sitting in solitary confinement, I can't even imagine what that's like. I have family members. I have nephews. You know, I have cousins who've been in the prison system. But every time someone speaks about that, it sounds just so inhumane. But what I do know, just like with our ancestors who came through the Middle Passage and like my great grandma used to say when she would pick up the Bible, be still and know be still and know that I am. And when you are in stillness, when you are with yourself, that is when the revelations come because you have no choice. 
You know, unfortunately, sometimes folks, when, when you have no choice but to be with yourself, you know, that's when revelations come. And we try to teach young people now to sit still or like grandma say, go somewhere, sit down and be still. That is the most therapeutic <laughs> recipe yes. for healing because sitting still and meditation, just sitting and letting that storm just keep going until it subsides and gets still so you can get clear. And so I found, you know, when I was in those spaces, I was the first person in my family to do a lot of things. So I felt very alone and I would go in the bathroom and cry. Then I'd have to pull it together and come back out. And after a while, I remember my mother said, just be yourself and don't be afraid. And when they speak a certain way to you, you just laugh, just start laughing until they think you crazy. And I remember walking back to my desk and I could, you could tell when people are just talking about you and I wanted to be liked, <laughs> you know, like who didn't want that? And I realized that it was what I was doing to be liked, to achieve. Well, they'll like me and they'll accept me if they see that I do this and I do that. I was like, nah. When I walked in one day and I was like, you know what? I was ready to quit. And it's usually when you're ready to quit that you get all the courage. I stopped caring. I detached from what I was doing and recognized who I was. And it was then that I gained my self-respect. And then I realized that I have a lot of issues. I have a lot of triggers. I have a lot of things that I never dealt with. And 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 I'll say this last thing. Um, I have relatives in my family who I don't believe they were mentally ill, but I believe things happened and and they let go. And we the family wasn't there to, to help them in those critical times. You know, I know sisters who um, experienced domestic abuse and the constant beating might have created some chemical imbalance, but also the emotional abuse. And I say that because I'll never forget one day I was experiencing <clears throat> so much stress, single mom juggling, trying to make it in the project, still trying to show up. And, blah, blah. and I was standing, I was getting ready to cross the street. And I'll never forget, I was experiencing something. And in that moment, I had to give thanks because I knew there was a moment where I just wanted to let go, just to just like just to check out. And I didn't. And so when people talk about where is your mind, that's what they say. You know, you know, how did you lose your mind? You know, and so <clears throat> we were born with the spirit of love and a sound mind. And it is so important that we provide the support. I'm a little, I'm, I'm actually, I was there in that moment. So forgive the emotion in my voice. But um, it was during those times that I realized that my healing was important. And when I began to do the work on myself and I saw that it worked, I was so motivated to just share the tools with other people so that they could also heal themselves because no one's coming to save us. And so you have to have the tools. And then you once you have the tools and you can find healing and clarity, you just want to give it away. You want to share with other people if you really have gone through a healing catharsis, a transformation like what Donna went through. She's now an ambassador of healing just by helping people with being relieved from the prison system. And congratulations, by the way, on the work that you did recently. Over 200 people were released from prison. But, you know, I mean, I would imagine hundreds and maybe thousands over the years that you've been doing this work. And it takes a level of healing to, to bring selflessness. So I acknowledge you, sister. Yeah, I want to get into another question, but we, we're acknowledging greatness right now. And I, and, and, and I just heard something. It didn't go over my head. So you just said, but the work that you did, Donna, you helped to free 200 people. Could you talk more about that? Actually, it's 300 and it'll be 391. Okay. Um, when it's all, when it's yes. all said and done. Yes. So our <laughs> less is more bill. We're, my organization, you know, I'm on the executive um, leadership of the campaign, less is more, uh, helped draft the bill and, you know, put it into motion. Um so Friday, what was it, Friday? <laughs> I can't remember anymore. It's like so much has happened in these few days. Um, uh, the governor signed our bill into law. And so what she did was put some, make some parts of it go into effect immediately. And the parts of it, what, mm -hmm. what didn't need so much um, uh, governmental paperwork and all this nonsense, because, you know, once you get bill passed into law, it usually doesn't go into effect until March of the following year. That's just set in stone. No one's changed that yet, but there's certain things that you can do to override certain things. So what she did was immediately ask docs, city docs, Rikers Island, 
specifically to release those who fit the, the criteria immediately. So that was 191. And then it would be 40 more people for the next five days following. Okay. Right? And so those came from other parts and from the state, right? From state prisons that could be released. And so that would be 200. Mm. So 391 altogether, I think, by week's end, by okay. this week's end, um, will be released based on what, you know, less is more has put into um, to play. And, you know, we we started this campaign a little over three years ago. And so actually, I feel thankful that it only took three years, right? A little over three years to get this done. But unfortunately, it comes with a price, right? You know, sometimes we have to be careful because things come with a price. And the price has been the loss of human life, right? And we can't equate one is better than the other. You know, we always hear this person, people say, well, this these people's lives are more important than these people. No, all human life should be just as important. And so we just got another, we just found out there was another death um, yesterday, I believe it was yesterday. Uh, yeah, another human being died at Rikers Island. And so now that's 10 people in, uh, in 10 months. And so, I mean, that's one too many. Well, one too many. And we know we're in a crisis. One of the things I said at the um, press release, right, that the signing, the bill signing with the governor was that this has been going on for decades. This has been going on for a very long time. This just didn't happen. What we what happened is we're at the pressure. You know how pressure cooking is it's busting open. We've burst open now and it's like seeping out immensely and, and, and cruelly. And so there are no other choices. Because if they continue, or if we all continue to go down that same path, what's it going to be? I mean, we're, we're going to be at a place where we can't come back from, right? There will be no more light. <laughs> there will be no light that we can hold on to. It will be completely dark. And so I'm thankful that I was part of this, um, this, this campaign, that I helped it from the very beginning, and that we were able to, you know, get people out, find some from some relief is not not it's not 100% but contribute to saving lives and putting some ease on the most cruel and inhumane detention center that we have left in this country. Yes, yes. Now, uh Donna, you and I both have been responsible parties in the past. Um and and with that being said, uh we probably know best both both know best um you know what, what that's like uh, to be in a mindset of hurting somebody, right? Um, and, and going through that process, do you mind sharing with our audience a little way about what it really takes for a person to be in that space, that mindset to hurt somebody else? Like, what is that mindset like to do that? So let me be clear. Um, so these are some of the misconceptions, right? So I want to be clear. I was convicted of kidnapping and murder. I didn't kidnap anyone. I walked into a kidnapping, couldn't walk out. I didn't murder anyone or contribute to the death of anyone. But what I, I am responsible for and I take accountability uh, for myself is that I, I, I agreed, I made a decision to agree to witness something. And that's how I walked into what was a kidnapping, right? Um, and so I still, and I, I struggled with this for a very long time. I still, and in my own way, I still struggle. How could I not help a human being who was in a very vulnerable state, right? Who could not help themselves. And I struggle with that. So that's my, that's where I feel my contribution, um, willing contribution to the death of Mr. V, right? And so that caused harm, that caused a lot of trauma, right? I think about his family. I think about others who were impacted by it. I think about myself who's been impacted by it. Every day. That's why I do this work. Right. And so there are ways in which we can cause harm without even willingly really wanting to right? our contribution to things. That's why I said we have to look at our roles into things. So. I am. Um, that's what really drives me. I know that. For me, I had to look at what happened to that little girl. Where she even the road that she was. Pushed on. Right. Because it wasn't even her choice as kids. You know, a lot of people put a lot of expectations and demands on children and expect them to be adults. Mm -hmm. But how can a child be an adult? We put them in adult situations and we expect them to navigate that and to, to, to process it and, and to, you know, do miracles with it. But they're still children. Right. Mm -hmm. So 
and then children get caught up. We, we put them in situations where they don't, they're not getting the nurturing and the development that they really need. And so that's what happened to me. As smart as I was with books, was as dumb as I was in the streets or at people, you know, personalities. Was, and I was never allowed to be, be around any child or anyone when I was growing up with the people that trafficked, you know, trafficked me here. And then mm-hmm. I became a sex slave, basically. I became a sex slave for a grown man, a grown married man who I was told to call dad. So it was hard. As smart as I was um, academically, was as inept and, and, and ignorant as I was socially right? And emotionally and psychologically, because I was being hurt every day. I was being hurt every day. And so you start thinking that that's normal. You start thinking that that's normal and it's okay. And it's not normal. It's not okay. But that's how children adapt. We have to make things okay so we can, so we can survive, right? Because if, especially if you're not getting any help, if no one's helping you through whatever, um, you know, whatever harms are, are, are happening around you or to you. So I, you know, made a decision. Okay, well, I'm going to witness, you know, an uh, intimate scene between someone I didn't know and somebody I was working at a temp job with, right? And I was, I was still an adolescent. Um, and that's where I went wrong because I should have seen something was wrong there, right? So that's the harm. For me, where it started, where I inflicted upon myself, again, repeating the cycle, and then walking into something that I couldn't walk out of because it was already a kidnapping in progress and I couldn't walk out of it. And then feeling like, you know, we talk about, when we talk about like the Jews in the concentration camps, we talk about those, you know, some of those Jews will tell you they did what they had to do to survive because they were placed under very cruel, inhumane, and, and, and unbelievable conditions. And you will do what you need to do to survive. When people are hungry, when they're starving, they're going to find something to eat. I don't care if they have to steal it. The stealing is wrong, but we never want to look at why a person is stealing. We never want to look at why, what pushes a per- drives a person to do something or be involved in something or just get caught up in something. We never want to look at that. And that's why I always bring everything back to what's the root cause? What's the root cause here? What's really going on? We always look at the behavior. But things drive behavior. Things drive it. And contribute to it. So for me, addressing harm, I have to look at what drove me, right? What harmed me enough where I couldn't even see and understand you know, how wrong that would be of me to walk into a, 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 a situation because that in itself was the wrong. But I, I, you know, it didn't matter because I was so desperate as a teenager, as a young person who had a child who basically from rape <laughs> was right. A product of rape and all the trauma that I just trying to find a way out. Oh, these people say they could help me. Okay, fine. Right. Not seeing because as a kid, you can't see the bigger picture. You just see the immediate. Like something's going to happen like this instantaneous. And so, you know, that's what I try to teach. That we place too many expectations on children and young people. They're not fully developed. We're not nurturing them and we're not helping them, you know, cognitively. We're just not doing that. Right. And then we expect so much. And then we label and we tar, we, we do, we vilify, we denigrate, we do all these things. But we're not looking at the whole story, the full picture of a person, especially of a child. We're not looking at it. And so, harm, you know, addressing the harm for me is looking at all of that and understanding all that because I lived it. And you got to look and see, okay, the behavior, you hate the behavior, but don't hate the person. Hate the behavior, but try to understand the person so you can make hopefully help them not do the same behavior again. That's it. You know, we have to really start looking at people as human beings, individuals, and understanding, you know, a person's situation. We always just look at the, the behavior. We always look at the consequences of whatever the harm is. We always look at that. And that's valid. But we're not going to solve a thing. We're not going to do a, We're not going to do anything 
if we don't look at the full picture and understand the human being in that, because that's what we're trying to do. We want to get the human being to recognize their own humanity so they'll stop causing the harm and perpetuating the trauma. That's the only way this works, be it gun violence, be it any kind of violence, be it whatever. The only way to do that is to get that human being to recognize their own humanity so they can see yours. Mm-hmm. Period. Understood. Period. I understand. And um, I also, um, of course, speaking of myself, right, um, that, that has been responsible for um, harming someone, myself, um, some of those things were connected to uh, basically not having a job, not being able to um, basically emote emote the things that I was going through. Like there was a lot of things when I sit back and think about it now, as we all do, we think about some of the pieces inside of there that may have caused that uh, as far as like um, me, a lack of a job for me, me feeling like I wanted to protect my family and feeling lost to being able to do so. And the only thing me having as a man of color at that time was my hands or, you know, whatever I was seen to be as the protector, but in that, in, in the wrongest ways. Right. And um, trying to, Somehow survive, survive through that. Um, I feel like the the, the part of empathy, um, which we've spoken of, like connecting to empathy, connecting to community, connecting to the people outside uh, in your community are some ways that we don't harm each other, right? Being able to see that person as somebody that's just like you. It did take me a while. Even That's why I love the process of common justice when it comes to restorative justice circles, um, and being in one of myself, because I was able to see that person as a person in my community and a brother to me, rather than somebody who was a cramp in my space, if you will, right? Somebody that was a threat to me in some way because he was just like me, um, that there wasn't no space for both of us. And the truth is there was, right? To, to be excellent. Um, so, Kepra. Uh, one of the things that amazes me about your work is the part about nutrition. Can you tell me more about eating healthy and nutrition and how it's an important part of the work you do? Thank you for that question. Nutrition and eating healthy are such a critical part of the work that we do because food has a direct impact on the blood and the nervous system. So you think about our communities that are food insecure, where young people may only get breakfast when they go to school. And during times of COVID, when school was closed, a lot of people didn't have breakfast, which is a fundamental part of the day. But then in these environments on the way to school, young people are going to the bodegas and they're getting candies and cakes and cookies. So they're eating a lot of processed foods and starch. And when they come home, unlike when I grew up where we sat around the dinner table to eat, people are grabbing fast food. And so all of that processed food, there's no life in the food. There's no water and nutrients. And so that impacts the blood and it actually heats up the body. So eating a lot of sugar, eating a lot of starch actually makes you more um, agitated. It can make you hypersexual and it can also cause you to be restless. And because of that, when you're met with any type of traumatic stimuli, whether it's vicarious trauma, whether someone just looks at you the wrong way, if you're already in a state of fight or flight because you're impacted by the trauma of violence or the threat of it in the community, and then inside, you're your nervous system doesn't have the ability to manage your emotion because you're acidic due to the food, you have a greater propensity to be violent, to just what we call pop off. And so in our community, we teach parents how to make the body more alkaline, how to find foods in a food insecure environment and make simple tonics, smoothies, juices, healthy meals to balance the nutritional intake of our children. A lot of our children have been misdiagnosed with ADHD and given medication. And a lot of times it's just because they're overstimulated and they either have too much sugar, too much starch, not enough water, not enough greens and fruits in the body. And so we believe a healthy mind and body is what creates a peaceful community. Nutrition is a really big part of that. Thank you so much for being here, both of you. Is there any way that you can let the listeners know about how they can find your book or basically follow your work. 
So uh, my book, which is, you know, my organization is named after a little piece of light, can be found at Hachette um, Publishing uh, online, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, most major, if not all major bookstores and, and online stores. And you can front reach me, you know, you can find me DonnieHilton.com or, you know, my organization, a little piece of light.net. Uh, yeah, I'm not hard to find. I'm Googleable, as I like to say. <laughs> You can reach me on Instagram at Kepra, K-H-E-P-E-R-A-H. One more time, K-H-E-P-E-R-A-H. And you can also go to lifecampinc.com um, or peaceisalifestyle.com. Those are both the same organization. And you can learn more about Life Camp, the work that we do. There's also a page on healing and wellness to find more about our online programs to help bring therapeutic services and wellness to the community. Thank you for tuning in to Common Justice Podcast. We want you to subscribe. We want you to continue to follow us. And don't forget to stay tuned as we have more to talk about in this amazing show. Thank you all. Have a blessed day. Thanks for having us. Thank you for being here. I love y'all. <laughs>